Support for WMFE comes from Orlando Science Center, offering four floors of wonder and discovery for families and curious minds of all ages. With exhibits, movies, and live shows that promote learning new skills, exploring fresh ideas, and cultivating a better understanding of the world around us. Tickets and more at osc.org. Kids, they ask the best space questions. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. NASA is heading back to the moon, and some of our youngest listeners have some really important questions about the future of exploration. Last week, WMFE and WUCF hosted a panel of space experts at the Orlando Science Center ahead of NASA's Artemis One mission, launching the SLS moon rocket carrying the Orion space capsule from Kennedy Space Center. We talked about the complexities of this mission, the new science happening at the moon, and the economic benefit of this next moonshot. Also at the event, some curious kids in the audience who had some questions of their own. How do you build a rocket? How do you build a rocket? That's a great question. <laughs> Just ahead, the burning questions from the curious kids in the audience. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. On Monday, NASA attempted to launch Artemis 1, the agency's first moon mission of a new lunar program called Artemis. That launch was scrubbed. Uh, this is a brand new rocket. It's not going to fly until it's ready. There are millions of components of this rocket and its systems. Uh, and uh, needless to say, the complexity uh, is daunting when you bring it all into the focus of a countdown. Before that launch attempt, WMFE and WCF teamed up for a live event at the Orlando Science Center called Return to the Moon. At the event last week, I co-moderated a panel with WUCF's Steve Mort about the mission's complexities, its goals, and potential economic impact here in Florida. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we had some great questions from the many young people in the audience. Before we get to their questions, let's first hear from our experts. Dan Flores is a test director at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. Addie Dove is a planetary scientist at UCF. And Dale Ketchum is with Space Florida. Ketchum began the conversation discussing the importance of the Artemis program. Well, I, I think it's important to recognize that we, when we ended the shuttle program, there was a recognition that we were going to fly with the Russians for a couple, couple years because we needed the resources that were going into shuttle to plan for our next program. And Constellation was canceled. We're now on the Artemis program. Uh, that has led to... Uh, a, in, we're still going to the moon, but now we're do taking a different approach. Uh, I think what's interesting about the development is the launch we're going to see is the largest part of the Artemis program, but it is the only part that is purely government run and operate. The rest of the program involves uh, an ever-increasing association and engagement by the commercial sector. And I think that's really excited people. Not that we don't want to see SLS go successfully, because that's, that's the, the, the cornerstone of it, really. And, and it's the one we've spent the most money on, planning on. Everything's been built around that. But now we're, you know, we're relying on the commercial sector. At first, it was uh, President Bush going to the commercial sector for commercial cargo to space station. And then President Obama did commercial crew to space station. 
President Trump's initiative was commercializing going to the moon with payloads with Eclipse program. And so now we've got SpaceX, Blue Origin, Northrop, Redwire, we've got all these different companies bringing their, their corporate technology, their corporate resources to the equation, as well as incorporating a host of international partners and building Artemis Accords that's really the sort of the legal foundation for the whole program. And I think that sort of percolates and permeates throughout the community to really feel that everybody's back in the sense that we're actually going somewhere. We're doing something that's meaningful. And, you know, all the commercial launches are great. I mean, they're spectacular. And that's what Space Florida is mostly focused on. But that's sort of building the capability to do something. And this is what it is we're doing. Eddie, um, you know, the moon is such an important part of, of your life. And I just wonder how you're sort of feeling about this as we, as we approach launch day. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm a lunar scientist, and yeah. I um, have built a number of experiments that have really focused on understanding what's happening on the surface of the moon, right? And so having this Artemis mission that's going to go back and sort of be this keystone, like you said, of all of these missions that are going to be going back is so exciting. And a lot of the things I work on are going to fly on some of the smaller CLIPS missions, so the, the commercial payloads. Um, they're flying a lot of the science instruments that are going to go alongside Artemis. But one of the great things about the Artemis program is how they're really involving science and scientists in all of the development of the missions. So even in the very first, um, they just released the landing sites for Artemis 3. Yeah. There's a sort of a slew of landing sites. Um, and those are all based on science and data that we have from current orbiting uh, spacecraft and understanding ways we can use the lunar resources and really find the optimal ways to go to the surface. We'd ask you about a, a bit more about your work, though, Dan. I mean, talk us through, you know, a day in your life when you're when you're putting on a launch like this. Um, you know, what does it take to make sure all the parts are in place? I mean, the, the stakes are pretty high, right? I mean, this is not a cheap endeavor. No, absolutely. It, it takes a it takes a, a massive, dedicated team, right? And this is a team that's. Uh, that's undergone several challenges, like you all know, right? The past couple of years, we've yeah. been going through a pandemic, and uh, that, that's a challenge on its own, to figure out how are we going to work and, and make progress during this time frame. But other than that, you know, we've had other challenges with, with resources. We have a team that has experience, a small team that has experience from shuttle, and we have a lot of younger folks that, that have come in over the past uh, couple of years that are gaining that experience and learning from from the, from the more senior folks to be ready to, to launch this vehicle. But it takes a dedicated team to ensure that all the parts are ready, to make sure that all the procedures, the schedules are right, and to make sure that the hardware is built and tested properly ahead of launch. Yeah, you work in long hours at the moment? Yeah, um, yeah I'll, I'll ask my wife. I, th I think she'll, <laughs> she'll agree that it's been, a, it's been some, some long hours, and the, yeah. and the whole team has been putting the long hours, but it's worth it, mm -hmm. right? We've been, most of this team have been working towards this goal for the past, several years and now it's our time to shine right this is this is our day to launch mm -hmm. dan this is an important mission in itself but it's also paving the way for artemis 2 and artemis 3 which will have crew on board um, talk to us a little bit about what does artemis 1 need to achieve and how does that pave the way for artemis 2 and artemis 3 for for nasa to say hey it's safe for us to put our astronauts in here yeah, so we have some basic goals, right, for, for, for the Artemis 1 mission. The main goal is to have a successful launch and to be able to, to send Orion into the proper orbit around the moon. 
right? We do have some experiments on board Orion right now. We do have some, uh, some radiation experiments to measure the dosage that the crew would be exposed to in deep space. So Orion is, right now, is the only uh, manned spacecraft that's capable of sending astronauts to the moon or to deep space for that matter due to the radiation shielding that's, that's, uh, that it has as part of its uh, design process and also the radiation hardening of, as part of all the electronics on board the, the spacecraft. Uh, so we will be measuring the radiation dosages on board the spacecraft and we also have a couple of experiments on board. We do have uh, the, uh, the commander Campos. He's a, he's a mannequin that will be flying in the uh, commander seat. Munikin, right? Munikin. Well, oh, that's the next Camp name. Campos is his last name. Okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> Munikin is his nickname. Okay. Yes. He'll, be, uh, he'll be on board and we will be instrumenting him to measure all the dynamics involved of a, for a lunar mission. And we also have uh, two torsos that were developed by the uh, German and the Israeli Space Agency. One of them, which will have a um, uh, a specially designed vest to, to protect the crew from, uh, from any radiation events in flight. Mm -hmm. So we'll be measuring the dosage that the crew may be exposed to in deep space and we'll incorporate those lessons into, into the Artemis II design and also to the, the mission planning. Mm -hmm. We heard a little bit this week that, that this, is, this mission is really pushing Orion to the limit, right? I mean, yes. this is a six-week-long mission, which is much longer than a, a human mission would be, right? This is this is to get some really good data from this, Oh yeah, right? we're gonna be getting some great data. It's a six week mission, like you said, right? So it's gonna test our capability to to have the, the, the spacecraft, Orion in orbit, the, all the consumables that go, go along with it, right? The, the fuel, the, the power consumption. So it's gonna, we're gonna get great data to support future Artemis missions. And one of the main goals is gonna be the reentry, right? This, this Orion is going to re-enter Earth's atmosphere faster than any other spacecraft has ever have has ever entered. So it's a that that stresses the heat shield in the bottom of the spacecraft significantly. So we're going to take some data uh, after we splash down the Pacific Ocean to ensure that we have the proper design to support uh, uh, you know crewed flights in the future. And those the the data that you're gathering from the the, the mannequins uh, on board. You know, obviously, going to the moon is one thing, and then eventually the idea is that you go on to, to Mars, right? Correct. Um, can you extrapolate anything from that data that you gather on, on, on what might face an astronaut eventually if they were to go on to Mars? You can extrapolate, you can extrapolate some of the data for the radiation events, mm -hmm. right, and for, for Earth's reentry. Um, that, that'll definitely help, right, with the, with the missions to progress to Mars. Um, but right now, our goal is to, to get to the moon, to, to establish our, uh, our gateway uh, in, in a few years around the moon, and to have a permanent presence in the moon so we can go beyond the Mars. Why are we going back to the moon, right? We, 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 we've done it. Is there a reason that we should be doing it again? Well, I'll just start with this. So I'm very happy that you know the early explorers came back, yeah. you know, so so we could be here and you know in the in the great country that we are today. So there there is a purpose to go back, right? It's been it's been over 50 years since we've left the moon, so it's time for humanity to go back and make it a permanent presence, so we can go beyond, right? We've been we've been confined to, to low Earth orbit for the past uh, for the past 50 years. We've done some great things. We've accomplished some great science on the International Space Station. Now it's time to take that technology and all the lessons that we applied and put them to good use in the moon so we can go beyond. We can go, we can go to Mars or we can go, go deeper into space. What do you guys think? Addie. Um, so one of the interesting things 
uh, of the saying, sure, we've been to the moon, right? And that's true for a few people, a handful, a couple handfuls of people, I guess. Um, and um, but in terms of like going somewhere and exploring, we've barely touched the surface, literally. So we have been to an, the number of places we've been in this total square area we've covered on the moon in the Apollo missions was like smaller than the United States, right? And so if you're trying to explore an entire planetary body, um, it's like going to less than, and it's, you're just exploring the United States here on Earth, right? There's, you're not gonna know about so many different things about what's shaped the Earth and about the processes taking place and about the history. Um, so there's a lot left to explore there. I also, the, the point about long duration and sustained presence of humans on the moon, I think is a, is a crucial one for long-term exploration. And that's not only just having people there, but doing science, understanding how humans live off-world and all of that. Um, some of these early missions are going to set the stages for that really nicely. That was UCF's Addie Dove, NASA's Dan Flores, and Space Florida's Dale Ketchum in a discussion moderated by me and my colleague at WUCF, Steve Mort. Still to come, some great questions from the kids in the audience. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute here on 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. WMFE and WUCF hosted a panel of space experts at the Orlando Science Center ahead of NASA's Artemis One mission, launching the SLS moon rocket carrying the Orion space capsule from Kennedy Space Center. We talked about the complexities of this mission, the new science happening at the moon, and the economic benefit of this next moonshot. We just heard from that panel, but now let's hear some questions from our younger space fans and members of the audience that night. Uh, thank you all for coming. This is a really awesome panel, and I only have one question, and it's um, how tall and how powerful is Artemis One compared to Saturn V? So Artemis One is about 322 feet tall. So yeah, 322 feet tall. Saturn V rocket was about 300 and I want to say 60 feet. So Saturn V was was it 40 or 60? I think it was like 43. 43? Okay. So Dale was, was there. How tall was it, Dale? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about that tall. So Saturn V rocket was a, lot ta- was, was a little bit taller. However, Artemis One is a lot more powerful, right? Artemis One is about uh, 8.8 8, 8 million pounds of thrust that lift off, where the Saturn V vehicle is about 7-ish million pounds. Um, the, the two rockets are very different. Um, the, the Artemis One rocket has those two massive solid rocket boosters and those four liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen engines to provide thrust all the way, you know, through for, to, get, to get you into orbit. Where the Saturn V vehicle had, had three different stages to, to get you there. Um, there, yeah, so the Artemis program, right, we have, we're in the block one configuration right now. At, for Artemis four, we're going to have a more powerful rocket where um, we'll have a more powerful upper stage that will be able to, to carry bigger payloads along with Orion uh, to the orbit of the moon. So that's, that's something to, to really look forward to. And I think this lady here has a, uh, has a question for us as well. <laughs> yes, ma'am. How do you build a rocket? How do you build a rocket? That's a great question. <laughs> Lots of money. <laughs> Lots of money, yeah. Lots of money. So there's a lot of different materials that, that come here. So for, for Artemis One, we have uh, the uh, solid rocket boosters that, that came from Utah, and we stack them like Legos. They just go up, 
on top of each other. There's five major pieces with a little nose cap on top. And then you take this big, big tank that comes from, from Louisiana. We put it right in the middle. And right on top of that, we put a, another cone and a second stage. So it's just like building Legos. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of testing, just like uh, when you probably see your dad at home with a meter <laughs> testing the electrical panel. There's a lot of that that goes on to get a rocket ready for launch. Lots of, lots of young people with questions. <laughs> yeah. I love yeah. it. I do too. Um, yes, sir. I have a question. Um, if we were going to live on the moon, what would happen to it during a lunar or solar eclipse? Mm. Abby, yeah. I'll take that one. Yeah, so that's a fun question. Um, so, so for a lunar eclipse, um, wait, now I have to make sure I'm saying this right. So um, for a lunar eclipse, right, uh, we, it would be sort of similar to lunar night. So it would be like you were sort of on the night side of the moon. Um, there's really interesting things that probably happen like right at the edges when it's coming in and out of eclipse. You get really interesting like electric fields and things like that. But it would probably be pretty similar to um, being on the night side. Um, during a solar eclipse, it would be really cool views of the Earth. But you wouldn't actually, depending on where you were on the moon, um, it wouldn't be that much different, actually. Would there be a, a corona around the Earth? During a lunar eclipse. Yeah. Yes. This is why I'm glad we invited a scientist. Yeah, yeah. So that's true. That's true. That's a good point. So, our, our so you know how when you have a lunar eclipse, <laughs> you have a lunar eclipse that sort of the moon turns reddish, right? Um, and that's actually because sunlight is scattering around the atmosphere and the, the limb of the Earth, and that red light preferentially goes to the moon. So it looks like the moon's red, right? So you would be able to see that sort of corona, that different, the, it, the light would look really different, and you would be able to see the edges of the sun behind the Earth. So sort of like we do for a solar eclipse on the moon, it would be the Earth blocking the sun. So. Yeah. So you have all that to look forward to, Brandon. Yeah, that'll be uh, nice. I'll send you pictures from our bureau. <laughs> Take a photographer a with question. you. That was a great <laughs> question. Yeah, yeah. Now yes, I want to do a little model. I know. How soon do you think we will be able, like ordinary people, to be able to go to the moon? Well, I think in a few years you'll be able to go. And that's the cool thing about the Artemis mission. You know, when I, when I grew up, I always heard stories from my parents and from my aunt and uncle that uh, the moment that the world stopped, to, for, to watch Neil Armstrong step on the moon, right? So your generation is going to be able to witness that in the next couple, couple of years, and you guys are also going to be eligible to go, right? You're going to be able to go uh, with the Artemis program, with, uh, with private companies as they develop the technologies to go. So I think there's a lot of hope for this young generation to carry the torch of exploration to go forward. I'd say like 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. <laughs> okay. yeah. Go to UCF first. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Although we do have Elon Musk is going to send that Japanese artist. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say the best way to accelerate the likelihood of common people going to the moon is to make a boatload of money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Buy lottery tickets. Yeah. Yes. Anything built on the moon, um, on like Mars, like for if we go there, if the Earth gets destroyed? I like that question. What, what if the Earth gets destroyed like this week? Sure. Um, 
Do we have anything to go to? <laughs> um, <laughs> They're closing the in? hatches on a ride today. So yeah. Okay. So so go there and then go. Um, maybe not this week. No, not this week. Um, so, a lo- so a lot of what you were saying earlier, right? A lot of going to the moon and understanding how we build our habitats there and living there is what we're going to do to understand how we live on Mars. And Mars is easier in some ways, but it's harder in other ways. Yeah. Um, it's a lot further. You're, you know, more exposed to radiation on the way there. So, you know, with the, with the technology that we have right now, it takes us nine months, you know, anywhere between six to nine months, depending on when you launch to get to Mars. Where the moon, that's only a couple days away. You know, it's a, it's a road trip to Maine. Uh, like any ideas of what you're going to build there? Oh, yeah, we have ideas. Oh, we just need the funding, Dale. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> get on that. Yeah. We have ideas. The, the, the first thing you build is someplace to get out of the radiation. Yeah. And everything we do there, or at least the vast majority of what we do there, both on the moon and Mars, is a big part of what they're studying at KSC is how to use what's there because we can't take everything there we've got to use what's there to provide for our needs and uh, you know whether it's uh, uh, food or radiation hardening chances are we'll be underground to begin with simply because it's a, a way to get out of the radiation it space is a nasty place and uh, you humans are delicate creatures Mm -hmm. and uh, we take a beating pretty quick and the key is to be able to get there and be healthy and exist and survive and struggle as opposed to just going there and dying we we don't want to do that you can take some shipping crates with (laughs) yeah that was a good question thank you thank you for the water water. yeah two questions what do you think about terraforming moon and the moon and mars oh that's a that's a fun question. You. Everybody's looking at me. Um, <laughs> so, so Mars is probably easier to terraform than the Earth because it does have an atmos- a little bit of an atmosphere, right? It has more gravity. Um, it has these big polar caps that we already know have a lot of water, ice, and CO2. Um, so Mars is probably going to be easier to terraform. I w- would say that we don't really understand how to do it well yet but there's a lot of interesting research that goes into understanding how to do that and how to make it successful and last long-term, right? We're not really gonna be able to terraform the moon. You can make bubbles, maybe, but we're probably not gonna be able to terraform the moon. We've done such a good job with this planet, why not work on another planet? Well, right? And, and that, that, that gets to We're a, good at warming things up, so. that, gets, that gets to a bigger question, and again, it's one that we won't stop to consider, but right. it's also part of the equation is w- what is the morality and ethics of completely transforming another body? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah. it's like the, I know here in Orange County, they voted to give natural rights to a river. Of course, Tallahassee took it away. But are there not natural rights on Mars and the moon? And, and these are arguments yeah. that we'll have and commerce will Go ahead and do whatever the hell it wants to do anyway, as it always has, but uh, they're valid arguments. But, but if, we, uh, if we become like a space-faring civilization, right? Well, the, these, the tragedy is, stones, uh, the, do, we, do we become like the science fiction, um, yeah. like Independence Day? We just go to different areas, different planets, and just bleed them of their resources and move on. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's what we do on this planet. So. <laughs> you got another one? If you were to live on any place other than Earth, what would it be? Uh, let's, uh, I'm going to, Abby, you go first. Oh. Yeah. Titan. Oh. Mm. I was going to yeah. say that, too. Oh. <laughs> Moons of Jupiter. You must Moons be listening to our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so Titan's super fun because it has a really thick atmosphere, kind of like original Earth, and um, it but has a lot lower gravity because it's very small. So, yeah, so this is a moon. Um, and so you could actually have, like, a, a parka, in some cases and survive, and you could fly really easily because the gravity is so low. So you and Dale are going to Titan? Yes. Where are you going? Uh, <laughs> I won't be too far. I think I'll go to Europa. Ooh, yeah, okay. Europa. that'll be, that'll be pretty cool. Steve, you? Yeah. Me? I'll go ice fishing or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I think I'd like to go to Alpha Centauri. Okay. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Check, see, see, see what see, those radio see waves were about, because I'm not convinced there. it was a microwave or oh, okay. uh, <laughs> whatever they think it was. <laughs> I'll be in my crater on the moon. Yeah, he's, he's still going to be on the moon. <laughs> Your pit. <laughs> filing, filing his filing reports. Filing stories. That's right. Yes, sir. How much fuel is in Orion? How much fuel is in Orion? That's a really good question. Um, so Orion itself does not have that much fuel. It uses uh, what we call hypergolic fuels. So it uses nitrogen tetroxide and uh, monomethyl hydrazine. So these are two uh, elements. Fun stuff. Okay. Lots, lots of fun yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, have some in my, my skin. <laughs> oh boy. No. No, it's, uh, so these are two chemicals that once they react with each other, they, expo they explode, they combust. They're, they're called hypergolic fuels. So they're the, the simplest and the most storable types of fuels that you can use in spacecraft. However, they're a little toxic. So you have to be very, very careful when, uh, when loading the spacecraft. So Orion has enough fuel. To, to maintain uh, orbit around the moon, to maintain attitude control, so that's where you're pointing relative to the Earth or the moon, so you can communicate back to Earth, and so you can observe the moon or observe the Earth as needed, uh, and it has enough fuel to make it back home. Uh, now, the SLS rocket itself has about, uh, I think it's eight, it has a lot of, <laughs> a lot, a lot of liquid hydrogen. Would you, uh, would we have to live in spacesuits forever if we were on the moon, or is there a way that we could create oxygen? Yeah, Yeah. so unfortunately around the moon, since there is no atmosphere, uh, if you're outside, you do have to, to be in spacesuits. Right? Could we um, evolve? I mean, you can get your gills back. Yeah. <laughs> but no. That, that wouldn't help. No. There's, there's nothing, right? There's yeah, nothing, there's there's nothing, nothing to, to breathe except for regolith, and that's going to damage your lungs. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, we can build domes or big habitats, right, in which you'd be able to have science centers and strip sleeve environments and all of that. But if you're ever going to go out on the surface, yeah. you're going to have to have a spacesuit. That was a portion of our live event taped last week at the Orlando Science Center. Catch more from that program, Return to the Moon, on September 9th at 8.30 p.m. on WUCF's Newsnight. More information online at WUCF.org. A huge thank you to WUCF's team, along with my colleagues at WMFE and the staff at the Orlando Science Center, and Steve Mort at WUCF for being a phenomenal co-host. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit wmfe.org slash yet? Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Our engineer for this show is Mac Dula. 
More coverage of the Artemis mission and everything happening in space is on our website, wmfe.org space. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thank you.